Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And we are going to be continuing our bourbon series today, actually finishing the French portion of it. We have a little Spanish stuff coming your way. But yeah, we're nearing the end, yeah. so enjoy these last couple. Savor it. Um, so we left off last talking about Madame de Pompadour and the ominous quote, Après nous le déluge, after us the deluge. And... Um, Fortunately for us, I guess, the deluge has been pretty thoroughly covered already on this podcast, not by the two of us, but by Candace and Jane. They did episodes on how the French Revolution worked, and did Marie Antoinette really say, let them eat cake? So I think a lot of you are already pretty familiar on the events of 1789 to 1799, what we think of as the main French Revolution, even though we're going to find out there are many more revolutions in France over the next few decades. Yeah, they did that quite a bit. They did. Um, but just long story short, in case you haven't listened to uh, the episode on how the French Revolution worked, the Bourbons were overthrown, obviously. The king and queen were executed. The reign of terror really prolonged and intensified the violence. It's It's probably what you're thinking of if you're thinking of the French Revolution. After that, the directory was established. And then finally, in 1799, the consulate was established, which essentially marked the beginning of Napoleon's dictatorship. So that's kind of where we're picking up. Um, By 1804, Napoleon was the emperor, and all the surviving Bourbons, or most of them at least, were emigres. They had uh, left France long ago. But they were really active emigres, and since this is their series, after all, we're going to track them through their revolutionary flights, throughout Napoleon's rule, through their own restoration, and their eventual fall. And in the course of that, we're going to take a look at the life of their last son, who was this strange little man who the legitimists um, really placed their hopes on for restoration of the monarchy. And he was the last French bourbon. Yeah, his name was Henri Dudonnet d'Artois, and he was the Comte de Chambord, variously known as King Henry V, or, depending on how you're looking at things, Henry the Pretender. Um, but long before the Comte de Chambord was even born, France had another pretender. This guy was a lot more successful because he actually did become king, and that was Louis the Eighteenth, and he was the younger brother of Louis the Sixteenth. So just to give you a little family history here, I actually think I might do a blog post of like a family tree <laughs> or something so you can follow along. That would be helpful because it's really confusing. It is. There's a lot of people, a lot of Louis. A lot that's going on. Anyways, though, the executed Louis the Sixteenth was actually one of several brothers, and his next oldest brother was Louis Stanislas Xavier, who was the Comte de Provence. And during the Revolution, he stayed behind in France pretty well into the heat of things. He didn't leave until June 1791, uh, which was pretty risky of him. The next youngest brother, though, was Charles-Philippe Comte d'Artois, and he left really early on. Louis XVI, you know, knew that he had certain family interests to protect and ordered his youngest brother out of France immediately after the fall of the Bastille. So, um, even though Louis, this is the point of all this, is even though Louis XVI and his 10-year-old son died during the revolution, there's still 
a fair number of bourbons hanging around. And they're okay. They're secure. They're safely out of France. And they just need an opening after after they've been deposed from their throne, after Napoleon has been in power. They just need an opening to get back. But um, unfortunately for them, Napoleon is making that return look pretty unlikely. But on the bright side, Louis Stanislaus Xavier, the Comte de Provence, he has some time, though. He promotes the royal cause throughout Europe, and he refuses to abdicate and accept a pension from Napoleon. So he sticks to his guns. He isn't going to accept just being a rich guy. Yeah, he considers himself Louis XVIII. He wants to be king again. So he finally does get his opening as Napoleon starts to slip from power in 1813. At that point, Louis XVIII puts out a manifesto stating that he'd restore bourbon power, but also recognize some changes from the revolution. So he's trying to kind of make peace here, find a middle ground. Yeah, he's he's saying, I'm not going to be Louis XIV, y'all. I accept that the revolution happened, and I'll be as modern of a monarch as a monarch can be. And it works for him. He's restored to the throne on May 3rd, 1814, and he starts to set up a constitutional monarchy as opposed to an absolute monarchy, which we discussed before in previous podcasts. Um, but guess who escapes from Elba at that point? Yeah, Napoleon's back in town. And you have to imagine this would be pretty disheartening for Louis XVIII, who has been in exile for so long. But with Napoleon back, the king is forced to flee France yet again. Um Napoleon doesn't last very long, though. He's only there for uh, what's called the 100 days, so you can get a pretty good idea <laughs> of how long. Um, and Louis returns to France after Napoleon's defeated at Waterloo in 1815. So the Bourbons are back. This is the second restoration, but they are solidly back in power now. It's still a very unsettled time for them, though. Um, the king is kind of between two radical groups, so we're going to kind of explain those two and really simplify it for you here. On one hand, there were the liberals, and they did not want the Bourbons as kings at all. On the other hand, there were the ultras or the ultra royalists. And of these, the king's brother, the Comte d'Artois, was the leader. So they were the extreme kind of right wing of the royalist movement. They were the large landowners, the aristocracy, the clericalists, the former emigres, and they'd like to do away with some of the concessions made since the Restoration. Yeah, so they weren't straight, like, let's get back to absolute monarchy, how it used to be. Uh, but they definitely have their own interests in mind. And throw into this mix, which this already sounds like it would be difficult enough to balance these two groups, throw into this mix the supporters of the Bourbon family's pesky Orléans cousins, who are the genealogically cadet branch of the Bourbon family. They are descendants of Louis XIV's younger brother, if you, if you want to get strictly family tree on it. But there there are lots of them, for one thing, and they're always kind of causing trouble. And they're a big threat to King Louis XVIII. And the main reason behind that is because the bourbon line is running pretty low on children. There aren't many of them left. Yeah, Louis himself has no kids, but his brother, the Comte d'Artois, has two sons. The eldest of these sons has been married to the surviving daughter of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette for decades. They have no kids, and it seems unlikely at this point that they ever will. The younger of the two sons, Charles Ferdinand, Duc de Berry, 
has only daughters. But he there's still some hope with him, though. He sort of, he could have more kids. There's we, potential. We know the old French law, though, so the daughters can't inherit. Oh, no. That keeps on coming up in these episodes. It's kind of how the Bourbons get here in the first place. But, um, yeah, the Duc de Berry, he's the the hope for the Bourbons. The, the hope is that he will have sons eventually. And that's certainly what this liberal saddler named Louvel is thinking, um, a, a bit of a crazy guy is thinking, when in 1820 he stabs, assassinates the Duc de Berry outside of the opera. And it's a terribly violent and kind of extraordinary death. He stabs him in the back. The blade goes straight through the Duke's body and hits the metals on his chest. He survives, though. He's not killed immediately. He survives, and he's carried back inside of the opera house. And, you know, his his uh, uncle, the king, is called, all the important ministers, the officers of state, the royal family, they're all in this opera house where they're the dancers and... <laughs> The flower girls and all of that business. Different kind of show at that point. (laughs) Definitely. And the Archbishop of Paris even consecrates the hall for this royal heir to to die in it in a suitable manner, uh, which makes it so the building can't be an opera house anymore. But um, the Duc de Berry does die, and France is in deep mourning. It looks like... There's no future for the Bourbons beyond these few surviving men. Uh, there are no sons to replace him. Or are there? Or, or are there? <laughs> yes, there's a surprise. The Duke's widow is pregnant, and in September 1820, Henri Diodonnet d'Artois, the God-given, you might remember that moniker also given to another Bourbon before, Louis XIV, yeah. is born. Some try to start rumors that he's a changeling, but no one really goes for it. Um, people are pretty actually excited about this. Yeah, if you're into the monarchy, you're definitely excited about the birth of this boy. He's the new hope for the Bourbons, and he gets the title the Duc de Bordeaux, and he he starts off life in a pretty big way. He's baptized in water from the River Jordan, been brought all the way to France, <laughs> and he's presented to crowds at the Tuileries, and people even raise money for him to purchase this extremely elaborate Chateau de Chambord, which makes him the Comte de Chambord, which is the title he uses for most of his life. Uh, they just want this future king to have a palace that's suitable for a king, and it certainly is. It's a palace that Francis I had really developed. It had 440 rooms, and to this day, it's Europe's largest enclosed forest park, and it has France's longest wall, which is 20 miles long. So, a claim to fame, indeed. A fun trivia fact for you. Um, so, this little baby, the Comte de Chambord, seems like he's got things lining up pretty well for him. Yeah, it appears to be a bright future at that point. But in 1820, the year of Chambord's birth and his father's assassination, this also marks kind of the end of moderate bourbon rule because the ultras are starting to make a little headway. They're not so middle ground anymore. Yeah, and things really only get worse in 1824 when Louis XVIII dies and his brother, the Comte d'Artois, becomes King Charles X. And we know he is the leader of the ultras, so we can imagine where what kind of politics he has, and they're not exactly in line with 
the rest of France at this point. Um, but the little Comte de Chambord, he features in his grandfather's coronation ceremony. He's still popular with the people. He comes riding in in the silver coach and wears a suit covered in little embroidered silver lilies. And he's a really cute little kid. He's blue-eyed. He has been taught to smile at everyone. He's popular. But like we said, grandfather, not so much. Right. So the now in power ultras, they don't appeal to the liberals or moderates at all. Charles X rotates through three different kinds of governments. And by the time he publishes restrictive ordinances in July 1830, the people have kind of had enough. Yeah. And those were the July ordinances. And they restricted suffrage. They restricted freedom of the press. So he had been chipping away at things for the past few years. But this was really the last straw for a lot of people. I mean, it was the last straw. Right. So there are protests, demonstrations, three days of fighting, and this is what we now know as the July Revolution. So Charles X abdicates. His eldest son, who is childless, as we mentioned, and he really has no interest to rule anyway, he abdicates 20 minutes later. So he's king for 20 minutes. He wants to make no secret that he has no interest in ruling France. Yeah, so this leaves the young Comte de Chambord, Charles X's grandson, technically king, technically King Henry V. And Charles X sort of promising too little too late. He, he hasn't realized that maybe this would have been a good situation to set up earlier. He thinks maybe he can combine family interests and make his rival cousin, Louis-Philippe, who's the Duc d'Orléans, lieutenant general of the kingdom, essentially act as regent for his young grandson. So you still have the Bourbon king, but the the Orléans family has the power, essentially. But Louis-Philippe is not going to go for this at this point when he's so close. He accepts the crown for himself. And by August 9th, he is king of the French. And we should we should Note that title. He's not the king of France. He's king of the French. Uh, It's supposed to sort of signify that he's king of the people, the citizens. And uh, he's really considered a bourgeois sort of monarch, even though he's definitely as blue-blooded as anyone. I read a few interesting things in a lecture given um, at Yale by Professor John Merriman. Supposedly, Louis-Philippe did things like visited Kentucky and sipped on bourbon, and he carried an umbrella, which was considered <laughs> very middle class. Very bourgeois. I guess if you were a noble, you'd have... Somebody, somebody carry it for you. Keeping you out of the rain anyways. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Louis Philippe, definitely a different kind of king, but it's still a constitutional monarchy. So for the Bourbons, though, that's technically it. They're never restored to the French throne. Um, like we said, we'll talk about the Spanish Bourbons on the other side of this, but, um, but we're still not really done with Chambord. We want to tell you a little more about him. Why didn't he become king? And how did France end up with a third republic instead of him, since he was around? Yeah, he's the last bourbon, so we're going to go to the end with him. So after Louis-Philippe seized the throne, Chambord, of course, had to flee the country with his grandfather, and they went to Scotland. And it's kind of a sad story if you consider that he's he's just... 10 years old at this point, but nobody tells him that they are 
fleeing the country, that they're no longer in power. And because the rules of the court are so rigid, everyone is calling him king and they're treating him like he's king. So he's really excited. He thinks, finally, I'm king. And he and his sister blow kisses to the people from the carriage while they're leaving France forever, potentially. Definitely a little tragic there. It definitely was. The court at that point, they moved to Prague. Um, no clear date of return. So he's brought up still as a bourbon, though. He's brought up to cherish his heritage, to hate the revolution, and unfortunately not to learn a whole lot else besides that. His French history was extremely romantic, so not necessarily true um, in all respects. And it was all the good stuff, basically, none of the bad. And he ended up with this idea of I guess, a perfect regime that never really existed. Yeah, his idea of his ancestors was just not not anywhere close to the reality. And in his late teens, he also goes through this sort of macabre phase. He is very devout, and his religious devotion ultimately turns off his confessor a little bit. <laughs> Even his confessor thinks he's going a little too far with it for potential king at some point. And so the boy is sent abroad. You know, they, they think that'll help lighten him up a little bit. And he's received in all these foreign courts as king, which is something that I think Louis Philippe must have not much cared for since he was king of the French. Um, but Chambord is not well educated. And so his appearances in all of these courts is a little funny. He's He's obtuse. That's probably the best word to describe him. Yeah, people in foreign courts actually don't know what to make of him quite. They they wonder is he is he playing a game? Is he, you know, having a joke of, of some sort? And it's only later that it becomes clear that he's actually a little bit of a joke himself. Yeah, he he gives such simple replies to questions that they think surely, you know, they're waiting for him <laughs> must to be kidding. crack a smile or something. I just I can definitely imagine this kind of scene going down. But one thing that doesn't help his later reputation is he has a horse riding accident when he's still pretty young and breaks his leg. It really limits the amount of exercise he can do. And he puts on quite a bit of weight throughout the rest of his life. He's already not a particularly tall fellow. He goes bald. You know, nothing wrong with any of that. But his <laughs> appearance is is not working in his favor for this pretender who's trying to reclaim his throne. He's not particularly dashing. Yeah, quite a quite a ways away from our green gallant that we started the series with. Exactly. Still, though, becoming king is his dream, believe it or not. And he seems like he's only waiting for the right opportunity to kind of slip in there. But when the July monarchy of his cousin Louis-Philippe is overturned and Louis-Philippe is actually ousted from power during the Revolution of 1848, Chambord doesn't really step up to the plate. He doesn't do anything to really take advantage of that opportunity. He's just married the daughter of the Duke of Medina, and he has considerable resources and potential for support, especially. She brought a lot of money into their alliance, for sure. Right. So he could be the replacement for Louis Philippe, but he sort of waffles at that point. Yeah, he does. And he's not quite willing to fight his way into Paris. And there's another heir hanging about, of course, Louis Napoleon, who's the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. And while 
Shambor is waffling, trying to decide what he's going to do, backing out at the last minute. This other heir, Louis Napoleon, is growing a lot more popular. And I think it's interesting. I read two obituaries, and they each took really different opinions on on this waffling. One was from the Times of London, and it really looked down on this as cowardice. I mean, they were quite clear. They considered Chambord a coward for not claiming his right. And that's kind of the initial reaction you have, I think, when yeah, you first learn this. Like, just go for it. Uh, the obituary in the New York Times, though, took a different opinion. And it was more like after seeing so much bloodshed, Chambord decided that if he was going to win back his right, he would do it peacefully. So I can see that. I can see that, too. I mean, here's somebody who most of his family has been killed in revolutions. You can see why he'd be hesitant to bring his country to war again. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, perhaps it was some combination of the two. That Very likely. Really drove him. But I guess we can't know that now. Soon enough, the more tenacious Bonaparte heir had, in fact, established himself as the leader of the Second Empire, and became Napoleon III. So for Chambord, it's just back to the gambling table and life abroad. He spends most of his time playing cards and telling anti-Semitic jokes with his entourage and just not really doing much serious. Yeah, he likes the easy life for sure. And remarkably, though, you, you would expect somebody like this would just stay at the cards and gambling as long as he had the resources to do so. But remarkably for this guy who did hardly anything to make his dream of becoming king happen, he gets a second chance to become king 20 years later in 1870. I mean, go figure. The Second Empire collapses in yet another revolution. We told you there were going to be a lot of these. Um, that revolution was followed by the Paris Commune in 1871. So again, there's chaotic violence in France and an opening for a new leader. And by this point, though, Chambord is about 50 years old. He's middle-aged. He's childless. Um, but he's still keen on the idea of becoming king. I mean, it's enough to, to rouse him from his card table, I guess. <laughs> so when a royal majority is elected to the National Assembly in 1870, restoration really seems possible for him. And so he finally, he actually acts this time. On October 9th, 1870, after Napoleon III's fall, Chambord issues a proclamation inviting all of France to reunite under the Bourbons. At this point, he's pretty, he's conciliatory. He, he doesn't want to be the old regime, but he claims that he'll also work to restore the church to what it was once in France. And that's a position that could prove to be quite popular at the time because there were waves of revivals in the 1870s. Yeah, so it's a conservative position, but one that people might actually go for. And eventually, Chambord even finally comes to Paris, which is a city that he's obviously hardly spent any time in. And he tours the city because he doesn't know it well. He goes to places like Notre Dame and Saint-Chapelle. And in just a side note here, he is really interested in his ancestors. Uh, it, it makes sense for a guy like this. But he supposedly kept what he thought were the bones of Marie Antoinette with him at all time. I guess that played into his macabre teen years a little, too. It just seems so odd to think of a king. You're about to try to be king of a country, and you know so little about it. You're going to see, like, all the big sights <laughs> and things. Dame, yeah. Right. It's like where I would go. <laughs> but it turns out that although 
Chambord put a certain face forward in the beginning, he wasn't necessarily as open to change as you would think. He started actually putting out these publications that probably alienated a lot of his supporters at that time. Yeah, they made him seem more absolutist than ever. Uh, one was from 1872, Mesidee. One from 1873, Manifest et Programme Politique and De l'Institution d'une Régence in 1874. But it, it really, I mean, if legitimists and Orleanists at the beginning, seemed like maybe they could compromise. It didn't seem like that could happen anymore. He did seem really absolutist, like he wasn't going to be a modern king. And interestingly, though, his undoing turns out to be his rigid stance on the French flag. Uh, his advisors tell him that he can he can maybe make it even even now even with all of these sort of absolutist ideas he's putting forth he could maybe become king if he agrees to keep the tricolor which is of course the flag of the revolution it's the bourbon white flag flanked by the red and blue of paris but he tells his advisors that he would not become the quote legitimate king of the revolution cuz i mean for him it's the flag that killed his family. He's not going to be king behind that flag. So royalists, you know, desperate to work with this guy any way they can, suggest that, okay, he could be king with his bourbon, white bourbon flag with the fleur-de-lis during his lifetime. But then after his death, he would be succeeded by his Orléans cousin, and then the flag would revert to the red, white, and blue French flag of the revolution. He says that, quote, without my principles, I am just a fat man with a big limp. And that's, again, according to Professor Merriman. He he can't stand behind that. It's just against how he feels. He's not going to be king and have this flag he doesn't believe in. So in June 1874, the motion to restore the Bourbons is defeated because he takes this stand and... It's defeated by a vote of 272 to 79. Quite handily. So, yeah. Um, January 3rd, 1875, the Republic is formally adopted by one vote. Yeah. That's the end of of the Bourbon cause, for sure. Uh, But it's interesting, though, because a lot of people think that this Republic will be temporary, this Third Republic. Um, A lot of the monarchists plan to to wait it out, wait out the life of Chambord, who is, after all, middle-aged, not the healthiest guy in the world. Maybe when he finally dies, they can put in his uh, less conservative cousin. But he lives until 1883, and by that point, nobody really wants a king anyways. The Republic seems to be working out better than most things have in the past few years, and it ends up lasting until the spring of 1940 when it's ultimately toppled by the Vichy regime. So that's that's how the Third Republic is established. It's interesting that it partly comes down to the decisions of this strange little guy who's into gambling and can't really let his history go. Yeah, and his stubbornness over a flag, which seems so simple. But then again, I guess, like you said, it did represent a whole lot to him. So... If you visit his chateau today, you can see his obviously never used coronation outfits and souvenirs. So apparently he thought there was hope still at some point. Wasn't willing to march into Paris, but was willing to commission a coronation outfit, apparently. Um, I think it's interesting. Apparently there are still royalists left in France today, 
probably not very many, but I heard about a year ago now a story on Morning Edition about people mourning the death of Louis the Sixteenth and hoping that hundreds of years, two hundred years after the fact, France would still have a king again. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I, I think there are a lot of potential pretenders, obviously no serious pretenders, but there's a lot of descendants to choose from. But it was interesting in the in the morning edition program, the common theme seemed to be that Louis XVI was such a good king, which you can't bring him back. Yeah, I mean, it, it was seemed more to be, I think they called it like a protest against the modern world rather than a sort of support of any particular person or potential pretender. You got to have a cause, though. I mean, you got to have a pretender if you're going to be talking about bringing back the monarchy. Maybe so. Maybe so. (laughs) I guess their idea was that only a king could represent all the people, like a president could only represent his particular political party. (laughs) One way of looking at it, I guess. But either way, this brings the story of the French bourbons, at least, to a close. And as we promised, though, we're going to take a look at the Spanish bourbon. So we'll do that down the road um but it's been kind of a long ride it has and we have one more stop along the way brings us to listener mail so this message is from chelsea and she wrote dear sarah and Devlina, as a french english translator who's had to sit through hours of french history classes i'm really enjoying your series on the bourbons I'm sharing some photos with you. When I was living in France a couple years ago, I lived right next to a suburb called Saint-Germain-en-Laye, where there is an ancient chateau where Louis XIV was born. To me, it is very impressive, but I guess when you're king of France, it's just not big enough since he had to go and build Versailles. And she sent some very nice photos. She wrote, Under the Vichy government, the Nazis operated from the chateau, and there are still two massive concrete bunkers outside the chateau that were built by the Nazis. They're really ugly and kind of a blot on an otherwise lovely place. So, um, yeah, if, if you check this photo out, um, I'm sure you could search for it online. It is pretty interesting, this juxtaposition. Um, but anyways, thank you, Chelsea, for sharing your photos and your thoughts on the Bourbon series. And we'll see y'all next time with our, our conclusion, our Spanish conclusion to this very long series. But if you want to learn a little bit more about how royal families and royalty work, I think we've pointed you to this one before. If you didn't get to check it out yet, visit our homepage and type in royalty at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.